Pastor Brandon, join with Pastor Zach. We are co-pastors at Westside Reformed Church, a URC congregation in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and today we wanted to kind of give a very basic overview of the book of Revelation and end time views. I know that there's all these views out there and it can be kind of confusing. You know, people toss around different, uh, you know, language like post-mill, on-mill, pre-mill, and people are trying to figure out, you know, what does all this mean? And sometimes it causes people just to kind of, kind of lift their hands up and say, well, I'm pan-mill. Everything's going to pan out in the end. Um, but, uh, but no, I think God, you know, he's, he definitely speaks uh, very pointedly in, in the book of Revelation. He definitely paints kind of uh, this, this end picture for us. And even though the weeds can get thick at times, it's helpful to walk through them to kind of at least know the contours of what's going on. And so I thought today we would just give a broad survey so that you would have some basic pillars of understanding so that as you're thinking about the book of Revelation, as you're reading the book or thinking about it in times or interacting with other Christians who have different views, you would at least know kind of generally what they're coming from, you know, where, where they're coming from and what they're talking about. But before we jump into, you know, specific millennial or rapture views, Zach, maybe you could kind of paint for us uh, what are just four different approaches to the book of Revelation? Because people have approached the book thinking it's about different things. I mean, so what are four basic approaches to the book of, Re of Revelation itself? Yep, sure. Well, the four different ways that people have uh, traditionally approached it, and of course there's going to be some nuance within this, but to keep it simple here, uh, one would be called a preterist view. And the preterist view uh, puts uh, a whole lot of stock in the year 70 AD and views John as having written the prophecy before 70 AD. And then when 70 AD, which is the time when um, the uh, Roman army uh, sacked Jerusalem and the temple, that that then uh, fulfilled uh, the uh, prophecies that are found in Revelation, or at least fulfilled them on large scale. Again, some different uh, versions of preterism. But again, that's putting the, the, um, the letter very early, earlier than most uh, scholars would place it, and putting the fulfillment really focusing on that event of the Roman um, conquest of Jerusalem and the temple. That's the preterist view. A second view out there that's out there is called the historicist view. And that view is one that views the book of Revelation as something of a, a prediction of world events between the um, ascension of Christ and his return. And that, you know, each of these chapters is unfolding in something of a sequential fashion. And that then we can see where we are in world history by looking at Revelation and seeing, okay, we have a few more chapters to go yet before the return of Christ in the last couple chapters of the book. And here's where we are within its timeline. And it views it in this linear sort of uh, sense. Uh, a third um, a view on Revelation is called the idealist uh, view. And that's the, the perspective of a, a sort of um, a, a version of this perspective that's a Pastor Brandon and I hold. The idealist view is one where we're looking at the book of Revelation in something of a cyclical fashion that then tells us 
what is happening during this time between Christ's first and second comings. And there's a bit of a ramping up. There's a bit of an escalation that happens throughout the book of Revelation. But in general, you can say that between chapter 1 and chapter 22, that we're, we're being shown what this entire age is like on earth and what it's like in heaven. And some people have described it almost like if you're watching a football game, you might see a, a, a play happen um, in real time, and then you're shown from different angles a replay of that exact same, um, uh, that exact same play. You might see it from the quarterback's uh, viewpoint. You might see it from the perspective of a wide receiver. You might see it from an end zone camera. And that you can see these different views of the exact same play and sequence of events with different points of emphasis, but that they're all really showing the same general um, message of what happened in that play. And that's the kind of way that we view the uh, book of Revelation. Different views on the exact same um, uh, sequence of events that uh, happened throughout the, um, the time between Christ's first and second comings. Uh, the last view then is called the Futurist. And uh, in this uh, perspective, the book of Revelation is really relegated to entirely future events once you, once you get beyond the seven churches that are being addressed. Oftentimes, churches and pastors who hold that view, they want to preach and teach upon something historical about the seven churches. Then everything else begins to be turned toward uh, the end times and what happens immediately before Christ uh, returns. And so, that, again, that's the futurist uh, perspective. So the four... Preterist, um, historicist, idealist, and then uh, futurist. We're talking about the book of Revelation because obviously that factors into end time stuff to some degree. Probably the key place where that, that uh, comes to bear within these conversations is Revelation 20, where it speaks about 1,000 years. And that um, uh, image of 1,000 years is then spoken of as a millennial age. And so maybe, Brandon, you can then start to orient us toward what this millennial thing has to do with anything, whether pre, post, amill, or whatever. Maybe start introducing us to those different millennial views sure. in uh, Revelation 20. Sure. And if you're interested, we did a podcast episode a while back on Revelation 20. I don't think we got into the weeds in terms of the various views. Right. We just kind of unpacked it in a more idealist, amill uh, uh, way. Mm -hmm. But if you're interested in kind of walking through the weeds of Revelation 20, I'll go ahead and link that, uh, that episode in the show notes page. But going back to the different views. So, you know, Revelation 20 starts speaking about this thousand-year reign, this millennial age, and there's different views that kind of arise out of this, trying to understand what's going on in the book of Re Revelation. And one of the earliest views was called the, we call today, the historic premillennial view. The historic premillennial view was popular with some of the early church fathers, for example, church father Papias uh, spoke about this kind of um, um, millennial view and quite basically it says that in the future there will be a great tribulation uh, they would say we're not in it yet but in the future there'll be a great tribulation uh, they believe that the church the God's people will live through the great tribulation but they often speak about how we will be kept from 
from the wrath of God. Like, we're not going to experience the wrath. They will usually liken it to Israel back in Egypt. I mean, if you, if you remember uh, when the plagues were coming upon, upon the Egyptians, um, they were allowed to, that last plague, paint the, door, uh, the doorpost so that the angel of death passed over um, the, the, the Israelites' house and only affected, only affected the Egyptians. And so they would say something like that's going to happen in the end, Great Tribulation. The church will live through it, uh, but be kept by, um, by the wrath of God. They're not going to experience, for example, the, the trumpets and the bowls and all of that kind of thing. And then at the end of the Great Tribulation, um, all of the dead that are righteous, that were believers, will be resurrected. Christ will come down, and at the end of the Tribulation, if you're still alive, you will go and meet Christ um, into the clouds, and everybody who ever lived who was a Christian, from Adam onward, will be resurrected, meet Christ into the clouds, herald Christ back to earth, and then there will and there then there will be a millennial reign. Um, now, many historic pre-mill uh, proponents do not believe it's going to be like an actual, you know, calendar date, one thousand years. You know, they're they're okay with taking it largely as a symbolic number, symbolic for a long period of time. So there's going to be a long period of time in which there will be a millennial reign on the earth that will that Christ will rule and Christ will reign, um, but. It's not going to be new heavens and new earth yet. So the millennial reign that's coming is going to be distinct from like consummation, glory, new heavens, new earth. Because during the millennial reign, they would say, people still die. But at an old age. You don't die like an in infancy or anything like that. It'll be an old age thing. There will be largely more peace where the lion and the lamb will, will dwell together. There will, it'll be a time where Christ rules with an iron scepter. And, and we, we even um, probably factor into that and rule along with him. And um, so there's going to be this millennial time where Christ is ruling on earth. Things are getting fulfilled. There's still wickedness here. And this is also kind of where it gets a little bit messy because they would say those, who, those believers who were resurrected are given glorified bodies, but yet there's unbelievers mixed in during this millennial reign. And during that millennial reign, Satan is chained down. For a thousand years, he can he cannot come out of his chains. That whole millennial reign, just with Christ. But at the end of the millennial reign, um, he will be unleashed for a time. And those unbelievers who were kind of mixed in with the glorified people during the millennial will somehow rise up, and they will try to uh, do war on the Lamb. And uh, that's um, when uh, Christ will defeat them. Uh, so there'll be a great white throne judgment. And that's when the second resurrection happens of the unjust. So there's two resurrections then. And the first resurrection happens when Christ comes back the first time to, to, to inaugurate this millennial reign. And that's only the righteous. That's only the resurrection of the righteous. And then at the end of the thousand year reign, then the unjust are resurrected and cast into the lake of fire. So that's... Um, that's the, the historic pre-mill view, and that, again, um, pretty historic, has some historic uh, pedigree to it. Um, 
Shortly after that, there arose another view, typically called the amillennial view, or amillennialism. This view was made popular by St. Augustine, for example. Um, but this view holds that the millennial reign began when Jesus died and rose again. Now, the name amillennial is a little bit of a misnomer because it, it, it uh, you know, in Latin, ah, something, it's, it's not something. So it's kind of saying like no millennium, but it's, we believe in a millennial, you know, but it's not, there's no future millennial, but the millennial is, is right now. The millennium is here. The millennium started when Jesus died, rose, and ascended, and that kind of kicked off this millennial reign where saints are reigning, Christ is reigning in heaven right now. And so for 2,000 years, we've been in the millennial reign. And obviously, the word millennium for, the, um, for those who hold to the, uh, the amillennial viewpoint is a symbolic uh, period of, of, of just a long time. And so for this long time, there's been this reign in heaven, this millennial reign. But we also believe that the Great Tribulation began when Jesus died, rose, and ascended. So it's kind of interesting. In the amillennial point of view, the millennial reign and the Great Tribulation are happening simultaneously. Um, and even as the saints are, are being described in heaven, they're described as beheaded under the altar in heaven. There's, there's a... A tribulation component here whereas many people want to want to see the millennium as this earthly golden age um, the amillennial uh, the amillennialists view it as something that is tribulation on earth uh, reigning in heaven in fact the amillennialists will say that when you die on earth that is the first resurrection you die and you are resurrected you go to be with Christ in that in that millennial reign and they believe that, um, you know, as Zach, and I, uh, as Zach mentioned, he and I believe in this um, idealist viewpoint that the book of Revelation is a cycle. There's cycles throughout it. And, you know, all the, the events that are happening in Revelation were happening in the first century, happening throughout the church age, and will happen into the future. But we, we think that there will be a heightening of sorts, a, a heightening of the Great Tribulation. We're in the Great Tribulation now, but it'll get heightened at the end. The spirit of the Antichrist is here now, but he will one day be made manifest physically right before the return of Christ. We also believe that um, Satan is chained down. He is chained, uh, but yet he's still working. He's still doing bad things, but he's not deceiving whole nations. He's not out um, deceiving the whole world, as it were, because the gospel is still going forth. The gospel is still able to go forth. People are being saved all around the world. Um, and a similar thing is being described in the book of Jude, for example, of demons being chained, but still demons are are still active and, and doing terrible things um, even even today. And so um, when people see the chained down language, sometimes they want to say, well, if Satan's chained down, then how is he doing anything? Um, but the way in which we, we, we would understand that text is Satan is chained during the thousand years. It just means he's on a short leash. He's still working, but he's not going to uh, max out, uh, as it were. But in the end, in that, when it gets heightened, perhaps then we will see more of a, more of a maxing out, more of a heightening activity there. So that's the, the amillennial uh, point of view on those things.
Another thing that, that uh, or another perspective that arose was called the post-millennial um, view. And the post-millennial view is that Jesus comes back after the millennial reign. So there's a millennial reign, and then Jesus will come post that, after that. And the, the post-mills believe that we are going to enter into a kind of a golden era on earth that the Spirit of God will pour forth with such power that almost, you could say, the whole globe almost becomes all converted. Like the whole world is, is practically converted. And everything's becoming Christian and Christianized. And we have Christian everything. And we're having this whole new um, uh, Christian reign, as it were. It's like a grander view of anything Solomon could ever imagine happening on a global scale. And then that ushers in the second coming of Christ. So when Christ comes back, he comes back to a very Christianized world where things are very golden. Now, it's not perfect, perhaps, during the golden period, but it's nearing. It's nearing that. It's getting very, very Christianized and, and as the Spirit of God pours out in large, in mass around the world. Um, but again, for the post-mill, post the thousand-year reigns, perhaps uh, symbolic for a long period of time, and um, but very much this idea that uh, there's going to be a Christianizing happening, transforming of, of, this, of this world um, before Christ comes back. So that's the, the post-mill viewpoint. Uh, and the last one to talk about is the dispensational premillennial uh, viewpoint, and that's the newest point of view. In fact, um, it's probably the only point of view known by many churches today, and it's probably the most popular point of view. In fact, people really don't know any other point of view a lot of times. I remember teaching the different views of, of Revelation uh, to a Sunday school class, and they had no idea that there was anything outside of the dispensational premillennial view. They thought that was the view, the only view, and they were shocked to hear that that was the, in fact, the newest viewpoint, uh, kind of the new kid on the block, so to speak. This view um, resembles a little bit of the historic premillennial view, but this view kind of amplifies things, where this view believes in more of a radical separation between the church, Gentile church, and Israel. Jews and Gentiles, in their mind, are radically separate. And they believe that in the future there will be a great tribulation, but they believe that the church will be raptured out of the world before the tribulation happens. And so the church is gone in heaven, and then God deals with his other people group, the Jews, during that seven-year tribulation, and they think it will be exactly seven years of, of tribulation, in which God's wrath will be, will be poured forth. And, um, and then after that, then um, uh, the Gentiles will come back down with Christ, and, uh, and then he will enter the millennial reign. And during the millennial reign, a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. So, for example, there was a prophecy that the temple will be would be rebuilt. There's prophecy, you know, given to Israel, and they would argue those prophecies still need to be fulfilled in Israel. And so, there's going to be a millennium in which all that was promised to Israel, God can make make good on. He can make good on those promises 
in the millennial reign to that to that people group. And again, there's differences within the dispensational camp. There's people who are more progressive dispensationalists. There's different views on things. Um, the classical dispensationalists had a very radical uh, uh, view of the separation between church and Israel, where they would say in the new heavens and the new earth, the church is in one realm and Israel is in a different realm. And so um, th they tend to approach things in a more literal fashion. There's going to be exactly thousand year reign. There's going to be exactly seven year uh, tribulation. Exactly everything promised to Israel will be given to ethnic Israel or or the nation of Israel in the millennial reign. So they have that kind of approach to the Bible where they have a very, I don't know, maybe wooden, literalistic approach to, to things. But Zach, anything you want to add to that? I don't think so. I mean, I think maybe just to nuance a little bit with the, the rapture views could be, could be helpful. Yeah. Because people will hear different um, people describe what their rapture view is. And typically when we think about this rapture idea... What they're talking about is the secret rapture. That's the normal use of the mm -hmm. term. That the, the, the church is secretly taken at some point within the timeline of history. And so you'll find some who will advocate for a, a, a pre-trib secret rapture. And then what that refers to is that the church will be secretly taken from earth. Christ has a secret return to get his church, his Gentile church, and whisks them off the earth right before the great tribulation begins. They might have, they might have seen some signs in the six o'clock news that the great tribulation is about to begin. They might be getting um, worked up because of events in the nation state of Israel. Uh, but the church would then be raptured secretly prior to the great tribulation uh, breaking out. So that's the, that's the pre-tribulation. Before the tribulation, Christ secretly comes back to rapture his uh, people uh, to to heaven. That's the that one of those dispensational viewpoints. Another one's called the the mid trib, and that's uh, not as prevalent in, at least in my experience. But some will advocate for that, where Christ comes back and yes, he allows his church to have a little bit of the taste of the tribulation before it gets too hairy. And then he takes them off off the earth in the middle of the whole uh, tribulation scene. That's the mid trib, and then finally the the post trib. Uh, rapture is one again where it's a secret rapture ordinarily where the, the language is used Christ returns to uh, after allowing his people to endure something of the rapture and to be persecuted and uh, martyred by uh, Antichrist and so they're working from Revelation and the um, witnesses lying dead in the streets and those sorts of metaphors, so they recognize that somehow the church does experience the tribulation, and so the, here they try to make a secret rapture after the uh, the seven years are are finished, when uh, Christ returns to take his church secretly to himself, before that uh, earthly golden age then commences. But um, it might be worth just to read the text on that's oftentimes appealed to about the rapture. I think so, and yeah. I think give what we believe is a more faithful um, understanding of this. Um, this is from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. And this is the text that is then used to advocate for a, a rapture of sorts or a secret rapture, as the dispensationalist scheme will uh, describe it. Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So the, the dispensationalist reads this and believes that this is not the same thing as the public second coming of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. They believe this is a secret coming where that's only for the Christians, and then they're taken off earth, and then the this is some with some uh, relationship to the tribulation, whether it's pre, mid, or post-tribulation, doesn't matter, but uh, earthly life goes on for some time, and the church is, um, uh, is taken away from that. So how might we understand this in a, a better way? Well, I think it's very clear from the verses I just read, against 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, that this is a very public event, not a secret event. There's trumpets. It's, it's the second coming. Exactly. There's a cry of command from heaven, an angelic cry very clearly, because of the voice of an archangel. I would imagine that that signifies to us something pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, the voice of an archangel is, I don't think, anything to scoff at. And then the sound of a trumpet of God, right? The uh, trumpets were used in the Old Testament as very loud signals to summon an entire army together or to summon God's people to worship. But they were used for the, the um, uh, high volume of sound. And so some have joked that uh, the dispensationalist makes this into a cosmic dog whistle that only the uh, Christians can hear uh, because it's so secret and that the rest of the world does not. But I think that this is really uh, indicating something much more public. Mm. And so Christ comes back, and what's being described here but yes, Christians rise, the dead first, because the Christians who are alive are not going to be given special treatment. The dead rise, Christians who are alive are caught up together with the Lord in the air. But the question is, why? What's going on? Well, it says that we who are caught up will meet the Lord in the air. And this same language is used in the Gospels to describe um, an event that Jesus describes where people go out of the city to meet uh, the Lord Jesus at the time of his second coming. What are they doing? Are they leaving the city to go out and meet Jesus and stay outside the city? No. They're going out of the city to meet the incoming king. And that's exactly what's being described here. The church is being caught up to the clouds to meet Christ in the air. Why? Because they're going out to welcome him and usher him back into the earth as he comes into his um, uh, into his creation to then conduct the judgments, to bring the nations down to their knees, and to, to uh, begin the new heavens and new earth, and also to begin hell by enacting that great and final judgment. So there's a bit of a welcoming committee that the churches uh, undertake to join the Lord of hosts, to join the angelic army, to participate with them in that great and glorious event. So to use... First Thessalonians 4, to happen before the tribulation, before any of that's happening, and somehow it's the secret thing that happens prior to all of that happening, 
it, it, you just can't make that text say that. That text is about the second coming of Jesus Christ, not about pre-trib or anything like that. And so this is clearly Christ coming back finally, once for all, and he's gonna he's going to uh, separate the wheat and the tares, the goat and the sheep, and yeah, to try to make it anything else would be to read something into the text that's not there. That's right. I think it's worth saying here, although we spent some time talking about Revelation and different ways of reading Revelation, that it is imperative that we allow the epistles of Paul, which are very clear, and the epistles of Peter, mm -hmm. to speak to us about the second coming of Jesus Christ and to speak to us clearly about how we Christians ought to live in this age and view ourselves within this age and not go uh, making things up because we can be um, inventive with the prophetic genre of the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. But these things need to be read in harmony with each other because even though we spend some time talking about Revelation, we should never imagine that that book alone is the book that tells us about the end times. No, because Jesus tells us about the end times within the Gospels. Right. Paul and Peter and John tell us about the end times within their epistles. Jude tells us about that. Ezekiel. So we need to look exactly mm -hmm. all sorts of places across the Old, New and Old Testament, mm -hmm. to your point, describe to us uh, what happens with the second coming of Christ. And so we need to give um, weight to all of Scripture to clarify the, the clearer parts would then clarify for us the less clear parts in order that we're not reading um, our own ideas and imaginations in the six o'clock news into um, the holy word of God. Mm. Any final words, Brandon? No, I think that was good, yeah. All right, well, we hope that you were helped by that. Um, please uh, check out our other episodes at thecincyreformed.org. And remember that we are sponsored by Westside Reformed um, Church. Uh, you can find us at westsideformed.org. We meet in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, every Sunday morning, we would love to have you join us someday. So until next time, thanks very much, and we'll see you then. Bye.